Pay careful attention. This is God's word. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord while I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Do not trust in princes, in mortal man, in whom there is no salvation. His spirit departs, he returns to the earth, and that very day his thoughts perish. How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoner, prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow, but he thwarts the way of the wicked. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Please be seated and let's ask the Lord's help. Father, we thank you for your word. There is blessing in the unfolding of your word. In your light, we see light. So we pray that you would sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your word. Help us to see Jesus, the friend of sinners. For we ask it in his name. Amen. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you received... Dr. Seuss's book, Oh, the Places You'll Go, when you graduated from either high school or college. Maybe you received multiple copies of this book. It's a popular book to give at times of graduation. Uh, I enjoy this book. I enjoy Dr. Seuss. He's, he's fun, to, fun to read. Uh, in that book, there's a, a poem you may remember kind of interject. I mean, the whole thing's poetry, but interjected in the, in the midst of this book, Oh, the Places You'll Go, there's a brief poem called The Waiting Place. And as Dr. Seuss is describing all the places that people will go and how they'll be, uh, you know, ahead of everybody else and do all these great things, he says, sometimes you won't. Sometimes you'll get into a slump and you'll end up in a place that he calls the waiting place, waiting for a train to go or a bus to come or a plane to go or the mail to come or the rain to go or the phone to ring or the snow to snow or waiting around for a yes or a no or waiting for their hair to grow. Everyone is just waiting, waiting for the fish to bite, or waiting for wind to fly a kite, or waiting around for Friday night, or waiting perhaps for their Uncle Jake, or a pot to boil, or a better break, or a string of pearls, or a pair of pants, or a wig with curls, or another chance. Everyone is just waiting. Now, for Dr. Seuss, for this story, for his book, The Waiting Place is not a place you want to be. It's a slump. It's that feeling of, of going and going and going, and then all of a sudden you're stopped and you, you have no purpose, you have no direction, you have no self-determination. You, in the waiting place, you are simply at the mercy of somebody else's schedule, somebody else's time. And, and there's some truth to that. None of us like being in that slump. But the Scriptures give us another picture of waiting picture of waiting that brings meaning and purpose to our waiting places, that redeems, if you will, the slump. In the Bible, waiting is anticipation. Waiting is bound up with hope, and hope never disappoints. 
Uh, we, we feel this kind of waiting and anticipation, don't we, around Christmas, which is a great time of anticipation. You anticipate a lot of things. For some, it's anticipating the break from school, both for students and teachers, I'm sure. We look forward to seeing family, or we look forward to being done with seeing family, depending on how you view that. We look forward to sharing a meal. We long for the traditions of the season, the choir programs, the Christmas caroling, the sausage cheese balls. As presents gather underneath the tree, we anticipate what we will receive, and hopefully we anticipate what we will be giving. Some anticipate stress. Some anticipate anxiety. Some anticipate loneliness. Waiting is hard, no matter what you're waiting for, a diagnosis, a test, a surgery, relief, and rescue. In the Christian tradition, uh, the season of Christmas is often referred to as Advent. It's the arrival of something long anticipated, something important. And really, Advent in, the Christian, in Christian history is not just the celebration of Jesus' birth, his first coming. It's the eager anticipation of his second coming, looking forward to his return. And so, as we come to this psalm, this psalm is a psalm of waiting, a psalm of hope, a psalm of anticipation. If you caught it, it looks forward at the end of the psalm to the time when the praise of the Lord shall triumph over all and God will reign as king forever. But as it looks forward to that time when, when Christ will return and bring all things to their completion, uh, the psalm looks at the here and now and says, what do we do? What do we do as we wait for that day when all shall be made right? As he looks to that day, as the psalmist looks to that day, he urges himself and he urges us to do two things to hope in God and to praise God, and by implication, to be shaped by that praise and by that hope. Praise and hope. This is what sustains us in the waiting place. Notice first, we should praise the Lord with all that we are. Did you catch that the psalmist is talking to himself? He's having a bit of a conversation with himself, but then he's inviting us in to the conversation as well. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord while I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. With all that he is, he desires to praise the Lord, and he speaks to himself. He commits himself to praising the Lord with his whole life. Worship is, is life. Life is worship. Paul commands us, commends to us in 1 Corinthians that whatever we do, whether we are eating, whether we are drinking, whatever we are doing, that we're to do all for the glory of God. All of life is meant to be an act of worship. He urges the believers in Rome to present their lives as a sacrifice of praise, that their whole lives are to be conformed to Christ and to be offered to Him uh, as an act of worship. We were made to worship God with our whole life, not just on Sunday mornings, but with everything that we do. And our, our great sin, our great struggle is that we often exchange the worship of God for the worship of other 
far less worthy things. It's not natural, if you will, uh, because of sin. It's not natural for our hearts now to be engaged in worshiping God with, with all that we are. We're constantly drawn away and divided in our affection and in our devotion. In the youth group recently, we've been going through a book called A Student's Guide to Technology, which I would commend to you. And one of the points that this book makes is that uh, modern technology, particularly in the, in the form of, of the device that you all have in your pockets, the smartphones, that modern technology, particularly the smartphone, uh, seems to have many characteristics that are godlike. Think about that for a second. Um, where is the internet? Well, it's everywhere, right? God is everywhere. I mean, the internet is not literally everywhere, but it's God-like. It seems like it's everywhere. It's all in all places. It's everywhere present. If you have a question and want to know something, whom do you ask? You Google it, right? Because Google knows all things. Google is omniscient, it appears. Not really, but it seems to know all things. It's God-like in that way. It's omnipresent, it's omniscient, and it seems to be uh, to us that modern technology seems to be all-powerful. We expect modern inventions, modern science to solve all problems, to have the power to bring peace, to bring health, to bring safety. We, we impose these characteristics upon modern technology. And in the book, it makes the point that when you, when you couple these kind of godlike characteristics with, of technology with the tendency of our hearts to worship idols, to make idols out of good things, to worship things that God has given us as gifts, and we elevate them to the place of God, this is a a recipe for disaster. This is a challenge that we all face now, that our hearts, as John Calvin says, are idol factories, and now we've been given technologies that seem to have godlike characteristics. It's not natural for us to worship God, to worship rightly. Uh, We need His grace to do it. And here the psalmist reminds us that we ought to commit ourselves to it. As he says, praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. We ought to praise the Lord with all that we are and therefore guard ourselves from all the ways that we don't do that. From all the ways that we adore and devote ourselves to things other than the living God. Notice, too, that he says, while we praise, we should wait and hope in the Lord. And there's a bit of a contrast here between a false hope and and a true hope. Notice he says in verse 3, immediately after talking about praising God and and praising Him with all that we are, he says, don't trust in princes. Don't trust in mortal man in whom there is no salvation. In other words, don't put your hope in the wrong place. And here he highlights what what would appear to us to be human strength, human power, um, our, our own ability, confidence in ourselves or in others. Don't trust in princes, in mortal man in whom there is no salvation. We're all kind of drawn to this. We're, we're all drawn to what appear, things that appear to be strong, things that appear to be stable and, and powerful. Uh, you, you see this in the, in the world of, of politics where 
Whoever rises to power, people flock to that person as uh, kind of embodying all the hopes that they have for the world. The psalm rightly reminds us there's no salvation in man. Man is, is fleeting. His, his life is a vapor. Uh, here there's a play on words that it's hard to capture in the English where it says, don't trust in princes, and then it says, or in mortal man. It's literally the son of Adam, son of man, in whom there is no salvation. And then in verse 4, it says, his spirit departs, he returns to the earth, but the word for earth there is Adamah. So don't trust in Adam, the son of Adam, because when he dies, he returns to the, the Adamah. One, one writer translates it, don't trust in earthlings, which is a little weird, because when they die, they return to the earth. But you get the point. We are dust. We come from dust, and when we die, we return to dust. We're, we're fleeting. Our life is a vapor. The life of all, all people is a vapor, and therefore don't put your hope in the wrong place. Nothing in this created world can, can bear the weight of your hope. Nothing. And yet we are constantly looking for something to, to put our hope in, something to, to carry the weight of our lives, something that won't fail us. And the message of the psalm is there's only one place where you will find a hope that can carry your whole life. And it's not in other people, it's not in relationships, it's not in your performance, it's not in your job, it's not in your health, um, it's, it's not in your failure, it's not in your triumph, it's not in you or any other thing in creation. Don't put your trust there, don't lay the weight of your life on anything except in the Lord. And so he contrasts this false hope of man with the Lord. How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob the God of cheaters, the God of swindlers, the God of manipulators. That's what Jacob was. And yet the God of the universe made a covenant with Jacob's family and promised to be God to them and to their descendants. Even before Jacob and his twin brother Esau were born, the Lord in his sovereign grace said, Jacob, I have loved Esau I have hated, apart from anything that either of them did or could do, the Lord freely, graciously placed his love upon Jacob in spite of what he deserved. He's the God who rescues sinners. He's the God of Jacob. He's also the, the Lord whom we should claim as our own. How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord, his God, taking the Lord as your own God. And then notice the emphasis here as he goes through and describes who, who is this Lord in whom we should place our hope. He's the creator, he's faithful, and he is the one who shows mercy to those who are vulnerable and powerless. Notice verse 6, he made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. He's the creator. He's powerful. He, he speaks and things that weren't there are there. He calls forth light, it was darkness, and then there's light, simply by the word of his power. He speaks and things happen. He's the creator. He's, he's all-powerful, and he rules over all of his creation. He is the powerful creator. He's also the faithful creator. He keeps faith 
forever. None of the Lord's promises are ever broken. He, ne- he never fails to keep his word. He never drops the ball. He never falls asleep at the wheel. He never says that he will do one thing and then quickly switches and does another. He is absolutely firm and reliable, steadfast and trustworthy in all his ways. He keeps all of his promises. He keeps faith forever. You can put your hope in him as you wait for his return. He's the creator. He's the faithful one. And he is the one who is compassionate for those who are vulnerable. What do you think about this list in this psalm? Oppressed, hungry, prisoners, those who are bowed down, strangers, fatherless, the widow. If you were to go out and, and pick a team for taking over the world, which is part of what God's promise to Abraham involves, I'm going to bless you and, and through you I'm going to bless the entire world, I'm going to populate the world with my people. He chooses Abraham and Sarah for that. If you're going to pick the team that's going to bring redemption to the world, is that team going to look like this list? Or are you going to pick the strong ones? Are you going to pick the mighty ones? Are you going to pick the clever ones? Maybe the wealthy ones? Are you going to pick the ones with power and influence, the ones who appear to be popular. Everybody, everybody flocks to them. Uh, that's what we're drawn to. We're drawn to things that look powerful, uh, people who seem to have influence and, and sway, and maybe they can get things done. But when the kingdom of God shows up and, and Jesus brings that kingdom in his own ministry, he, he begins his ministry by quoting from the book of Isaiah. You've got it on the, part of it on the children's challenge, a little picture there. It's kind of small. I don't know if you can see it. But Jesus begins his ministry, he establishes his ministry as the Messiah, as the one bringing the kingdom by, by quoting from Isaiah 61 saying, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to open the eyes of the blind. And all throughout Jesus' ministry, you see him doing this, gathering to himself the outcasts, gathering to himself those who are on the fringe, gathering to himself those who cannot repay any of his good deeds, any of his mercy, any of his grace. They have nothing, humanly speaking, to offer him except their need for him. And so he casts out the demons, he, he heals the sick, he heals the lame, people who haven't walked for their entire lives. He raises the dead, he gathers tax collectors and sinners to him, and all of the religious people are looking on saying, what are you doing? These people are sinners, and you're eating with them, you're gathering them around your table, and Jesus says, I didn't come for the righteous, I came for those who are sick. I came for those who are in need of mercy and compassion. And he tells the Pharisees, go learn what that means, that the Lord desires mercy, not sacrifice. 
Jesus brings his kingdom to those who are in need. And this psalm captures a picture, if you will, of those who are in need. Those who are oppressed, he vindicates. Those who are hungry, he feeds. Those who are bound up, bound up in their sin, he looses their, their binding. He sets them free. Those who are blind, he brings light. Those who are bowed down and humbled, he raises them up. And then you have these three, I'm skipping one, you'll notice, you have these three in verse 9, the stranger, you know, the traveler, the sojourner, the foreigner, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. In the Old Testament, these are the three most vulnerable groups. They have no one to protect, provide for them. Uh, They are literally at the mercy of others. And so in the Old Testament, you have laws to protect them, that the Lord gives to his people. For example, he says, when you go and harvest your field, don't get it all. Leave a little bit around the outside. Leave, leave some so that the widow and the orphan and the stranger can come and gather up the gleanings from the corners of your field. They will be provided for among my people because they cannot provide for themselves. And he urges his people again and again don't do injustice to the stranger, to the widow, to the orphan, but protect them, provide for them, because you were a stranger in a foreign land, because you were an orphan and I made you my children, because the Lord is the father to the fatherless. Sometimes we think that what's needed for us to come to the Lord is, is for us to clean ourselves up, make a good show, have, have everything all put together, and then we come to him, and, and he will accept us. And this psalm reminds us that the people who belong to God's kingdom are not the ones who are put together, not the ones who are self-reliant, who have it all in themselves, but they're the ones who recognize that they don't. They're the ones who are oppressed and who need somebody else to be their advocate. They're the ones who are bowed down under the weight of sin and need Jesus to say, come to me and, and bear my yoke. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. I'll give you rest. They're the ones who are, are spiritually blind and need the Holy Spirit to open their eyes so that they can see a Savior who loves the sinner who comes to him. The Lord loves the righteous. That's an interesting one thrown in there. It, it seems to not fit among the others. But I think it's a way of reminding us that, that not only are we oppressed and in need of justice, hungry and in need of food and so forth, but we are sinners in need of righteousness. And in the kingdom of God, Jesus gives us righteousness, the very thing that's required for us to stand before the presence of God, a perfect record of pure obedience on the inside and on the outside. That's what's required for us to belong to the kingdom of God. That's whom the Father loves. And in his love, he has promised in Christ to give us that very thing that we need, to give us the righteousness of Christ, to cover us with his righteousness, to cover over all our sin. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, describing and summarizing the work of Jesus, he says that God made Jesus, God made him who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God 
in him. And Paul, even in examining his own life, talks about all of his merit, all of his good deeds. He was a Pharisee. He's the tribe of Benjamin. He's, he's, he's all of these things that you would think he'd be able to use to commend himself to God. And he says, it's all rubbish. None of it matters in comparison to knowing Jesus and being found righteous in him. You see, the good news of the gospel is that in Christ we have all the righteousness that we need. And and none of it has to do with what you've done. It all has to do with what Christ has done on our behalf. And while we wait, while we wait, we put our hope in the God who is merciful to the powerless, compassionate to the weak and the vulnerable, and who gives righteousness to sinners. Think about the way that that ought to shape our, our lives as followers of Christ. I think we all struggle with this. I know I do. We feel like I come to Jesus in my moment of crisis. I come to Jesus when I'm at the lowest point uh, in life. I'm at the bottom of the well. And, and that's, that's when I come to him. And I'm all, I'm all messed up. Things are not right and, and now I, I see that I really need him, and I come to him in that moment of need. And then once I come to him, it's up to me. I, I can do it. I can perform. I can be put together. I need to know everything. I need to do it all right. I need to have the answer. I need to be resourceful in myself. And all of a sudden, there's this huge contrast between the way we come to Christ and the way we live life for him as though it's up to us. Why does this psalm highlight the vulnerable, the weak, the powerless, the ones who are needy? In part because our hope is in the fact that we are always vulnerable. We are always weak and powerless. We are always needy. And God is the one who supplies the need for the needy. He's the father to the fatherless. He's the helper of the helpless. He is hope to the hopeless. And you never get to a point where that's not true because you never get to a point where you don't need Christ. We need him for righteousness. We need him for growing in righteousness. We need him all throughout life. And as we wait, we're to anchor our hope in him. So don't trust in princes. Don't trust in yourself. Put your hope in the God who helps the helpless. And may our lives be shaped by this God who does not ration mercy according to your strength, but gives it freely according to your need. And all of that is seen in Jesus Christ. As we come to the table, we come with this wonderful reminder. Uh, we, we, we do this monthly, and, and it's a wonderful blessing to be able to gather at the table each month to be reminded we are needy sinners, and we have a Savior who meets us in our need He doesn't wait for us to be cleaned up for us to come. He bids us to come and to embrace him and to find in him all that we need for life, for salvation, for hope. And so as we come to the table, we have an opportunity to again examine our own hearts, to consider our sin, our need, and how Christ has met us in the midst of it uh, with his life of righteousness, with his death on the cross, and with his resurrection, breaking the back of death and giving us 
eternal life and a hope that can never be broken. May our lives be shaped by that as we wait, as we praise, and as we hope in him. Would you pray with me?